Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, everybody, to the Circle of Insight. With me today is Howard Bloom. Question is, you should know him if you don't. Howard Bloom has written six books and articles for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Wired, and a host of others. He's also regularly appeared on Saudi Arabia's TV channel and Iran's global English language press TV, where he's debated senior officials from Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood and Gaza's Hamas and Iran's Al Alam TV. He is one man who is not afraid for a debate, but he's written a fascinating book called The Muhammad Code. It's the story of how a desert prophet set up for the death cults of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram. The code, the book, the code is the story of how that prophet demands that his never-ending war be turned against you and me. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show Howard Bloom. Welcome, sir. Thanks, Dr. Carmelis. I've been looking forward to it. This is a really fascinating book. I've been doing a lot of research on Muhammad, on the terrorist recruitment, so I'm really excited about the interview. First and foremost, we got to get the way the, the general, typical questions that we always ask. What motivated you to write this book? Well, um, I grew up in a, a Jewish family uh, after World War II, and uh, my grandmother and my parents used to keep these little uh, tin cans with white wrappings around them and a Star of David on them. And they were Zionists. They were saving up for the uh, foundation of a state that didn't exist yet called Israel. And then, uh, and and to me, um, the idea of being a Zionist meant that um, there was this tract of malarial swamps and deserts in the Middle East where the Bible, most of the Bible takes place, that have been traditionally Jewish territory for 3,200 years and uh, where Jews had lived continuously for 3,200 years. It had been taken over by four imperialist colonialist forces, including... Uh, ...their territory, because they have a territory that's... Now, brace yourself, it's three times the size of the United States. By they, I mean the Arabs. Wow. So the dream was to help show how to take uninhabitable land, turn it rich, turn it into gardens, and then teach our Arab brethren how to do the same thing. Well, things did not work out that way, and uh, five Arab nations on the day that Israel was declared as a state, um, they, they radioed in to the Arabs living in that territory to leave their homes immediately. Within 24 hours, the Jews would be driven into the sea. And they could come back and they could pick scoop up the loot. Um, and that, <laughs> I was only a little kid, but that didn't sit terribly well with me. And then um, around uh, 1959 or something like that, or 1961, I was, uh, my dad had said he would send me to Israel for a year. That sounded interesting. <laughs> so I went down, I hitchhiked down to Swarthmore College and I was researching the Middle East. And 
while I was doing my research, I ran across a, a pamphlet in a library uh, drawer, and the pamphlet was from the Arab League. Now, the Arab League represented every merit major Arab country in the world um, at that point in time. It was the epitome of moderation. It was the epitome of consensus, um, and it was the epitome of officialdom. And this pamphlet told me something that I simply never had heard before. It said, um, well, don't be deceived into thinking that Hitler was an anti-Semite. He wasn't. In fact, he was a Jewish puppet. Um, don't be deceived into thinking that there was a Holocaust. There wasn't. In fact, it was a hoax. Um, oh, wow. The Jews used Adolf Hitler in order to gain sympathy. They put on the hoax of the Holocaust in order to gain sympathy so that the world would give them uh, the patch of land which is now called Israel. Well, I'm Jewish. My, my entire family disappeared in Europe. It disappeared entirely in Europe. I had cousins who had barely survived the Holocaust. I had an aunt, all of whose sisters, brothers, mother, and father had been killed in the Holocaust. I knew that what this official pamphlet from the Arab League was saying was not true but it was as official, as official as could possibly be. And that set me off on the track of studying Islam. That was a long time ago, roughly, as I said, 1961. Um, and it set me off on the track for another reason. My field is science. I started at the age of 10 in microbiology and theoretical physics, and then I realized when I was 12 years old that one of the most important phenomena going on around me was the fact that my parents and everybody I'd ever read of, by then I was reading two books a day, I'd read all kinds of anthropology books, no matter what people I read of, they believed in supernatural forces and some equivalent to gods or demons. And um, I wanted, I found anthropology fascinating. I found the fact that other people look at the world in ways very, very different than the way that you and I look at the world. Very illuminating and very useful in seeing into our society. So I've been seeking alien uh, societies, societies with very, very different psychologies than yours and mine in order to illuminate our own society and the basics of human nature. And slowly, over the course of decade after decade after decade of studying Islam, I realized that the society that was the most alien, um, which was going to provide me the greatest vantage point from which to look at human nature was the one that I was studying all along, and that was uh, Islam. There was one more motivator, and that other motivator was that in the 1990s, I began to collect everything that Osama bin Laden had ever said or written, everything that had ever been set down. And I found it, I was even, I was being courted by publishers to put it out as a book. But I gradually realized that there's no way in hell that any of my readers would ever understand what Osama bin Laden was talking about. And the reason was that he was an extremely erudite man. He was an extraordinary scholar. And yet, and I had been studying history for decades, for 30 or 40 years by then. And despite all of my study of history, when he referred to a name, I didn't even know if it was a place name or a person's name. I didn't recognize that name at all. So I set out to crack what I originally thought of as the Osama Code, and it took a long time, Carlos. And eventually, um, around 2003, I finally 
found the key. I found that the key to Muhammad's code, or Osama's code, was there right under my nose the whole time. It was in the Quran, it was in the Hadith, which are holy books of Islam that record all of the eyewitness accounts of Muhammad's deeds and of his sayings, and it was in the two very earliest Islamic biographies of Muhammad that the Islamic community worldwide depends on. Um, the biography written by Ibn Ishaq and the, the 36 the 36 volume long biography written by Al-Tabari but the problem was that these source documents were like jigsaw puzzle pieces so I spent the next two years putting the jigsaw puzzle pieces together in a timeline and the story that emerged was shocking it was astonishing it was the story of Muhammad's life and it turns out that in Islam the most important thing is Muhammad's life because Muhammad's life is considered to be a paragon for all time, a template on which we all should model our lives in order to be holy, just, and virtuous. Um, and we are supposed to follow Muhammad's life step by step by step. And there is a major problem in following Muhammad's life, aside from the fact that the source books are, as I said, jumbled like jigsaw puzzle pieces. The major problem is that Muhammad is the very opposite of what you and I have ever been taught to believe a prophet is. He never called himself a prophet of peace. He called himself a prophet of war. He uh, personally commanded 65 military campaigns. He personally led 27 of them. He would put on two coats of chain mail. He would put on a helmet. He would strap on his arrow case filled with bows take his bow and take his sword. Um, and he would go out to, in the words of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the founder of modern-day Iran, and it's still modern-day Iran's George Washington, um, in other words, his words count today in Islam. Um, the Ayatollah said he went out into battle to be killed, to, to kill and be killed. Um, or, or the Ayatollah said all of our great men went into battle to kill and be killed. And Muhammad led personally led in the conquest of 317 square miles of territory. Um, I know this is hard to believe. A day. That's according day. to the Universal Sunnah. Yes, that, wow. that's according to the Universal Sunnah Foundation um, in Pakistan. So this is not the kind of prophet that you and I have ever been led to believe exists. This is not a prophet like Buddha. This is not a prophet like Jesus. This is not a prophet like Moses. Um, and there's one other thing, and I discovered this in the process of writing this book, of putting together this astonishing story, which uh, one of actually the, a story that is one of the most consequential stories literally in the history of the world. And that is that in 629 A.D., God sat Muhammad down, and Muhammad said he brought the ends of the earth together in front of me. And he said, all that is to the east shall be yours, and all that is to the west shall be yours. Well, there are a number of these little incidents uh, where God reveals his ultimate purpose for Muhammad in the Quran and the Hadith. And they all come down to the same thing. Every prophet, uh, there have been holy figures before who've had real estate aspirations, but they've been to very, very small pieces of real estate. For example, Moses was bringing the Jews to the Promised Land, but the Promised Land was one-sixth the size of New York State. God was telling Muhammad that it was his job, Muhammad's job, to take over the entire world for Islam. And Islam has been in the process.
700 men in one village, each, every single male old enough to have pubic hair, confined, and then let out, uh, apparently two by two, onto the streets of Medina, the, the town that he was op- in which he was operating as a totalitarian military dictator at the time, and sat there all day long as his one of his confederates, Zubair, cut the heads off of each of these 700 to 900 men, and he loved it. When one of his former neighbors, who he had defeated in battle, came to him and said, Mohammed, uh, he'd been captured, the, the neighbor, and, and he said, Mohammed, you know my daughters, who will take care of my children when I'm gone? And Mohammed said, hellfire, and had him beheaded on the spot. Um, in wow. fact, Mohammed set up a system in which if somebody in any way questioned him, in any way dissented from what he was doing, the default mode for his followers was kill him, period. Muhammad got angry if you did not kill a dissenter and if you waited for him to give explicit orders to carry out that execution, that assassination. Let me let me ask you something, Mr. Bloom. Fascinating stuff. You already whet all of our appetites. Everybody, the book's called The Muhammad Code by Howard Bloom, a must-read on Amazon. Uh, there, there are some people who have different versions. They say even that there's a Medina. Um, how would you say there was a Medina version of the a part of the Quran and then a Mecca part of the Quran? Yes, exactly. You how got do, it. How do we reconcile that with everything you're saying here? Did he change? Did he really change? Or has he always been like that? What you, what's your take on that? He changed. And um, he became afraid. He was causing a lot of trouble. People didn't like him an awful lot when he was preaching his religion. But while he was in Mecca, because he was living amongst... Hold on one second. We're, we lost connection. Now we're back on. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Sir. So Muhammad was afraid that the people of Mecca wanted to do away with him. So they wanted to kill him, wanted to assassinate him. He was causing too much trouble. So he fled 220 miles north to a little town called uh, Medina. Now to call a town little is amazing because Mecca wasn't that big of a town. But this was a town of only 1,000 inhabitants. That's right. And, and now, and Muhammad's followers, there weren't that many of them, but his followers fled with him to Medina. Now, you and you, they were house guests at Medina. Medina was a town established by Jews, apparently. And um, so Muhammad is a house guest, very painfully aware of the fact house guests aren't welcome for that long. And he's got to do something to reward the people who are putting him up, calls them the Ansars, the helpers. Um, and he's got to do something to maintain the loyalty of his own followers. Now, um, Mecca, his hometown, has a major business. It's the transport business, the luxury goods transport business. It's in the camel caravan business. So the people of Mecca, his hometown, um, get together camel caravans. In fact, the, uh, Muhammad, when he was younger, when he was 23 years old, a 40 year
she had more, her fortune was greater than the fortune that all of the men of the Meccans combined. Wow. And it is said that she had 80,000 camels. So for one business person to own 80,000 camels, that's a big business. It's a monopoly. And it's a distance, <laughs> and it's a distance of over 1,000 miles from the Indian Ocean, where you can bring in, and the Arabian Sea, where you can bring in highly treasured goods from China and India, and where they raise things like frankincense. frankincense and myrrh. So you loaded this stuff up in Yemen on your camels and you took it over a thousand miles to Damascus in Syria, which was near the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, there was a general rule in the desert. One of, uh, one of uh, Muhammad's biographers, uh, one of his Muslim biographers, because this book is based almost exclusively on Muslim sources, sources you, are, by the way, are not supposed to read. Um, but um, the the biographer makes the point how to keep his men loyal to him and he comes up with a bright idea there's a camel caravan coming back from Damascus to Mecca. That's not a fair way to put it. Uh, carrying the profits. That's a lot of money. And so Muhammad attacks the, cam the camel caravan. And his men, his followers, get carried away. And they start killing, indiscriminately killing the people who are operating the camel caravan. Now, what do you think a, a, a prophet would do under those circumstances where he's lost control of his men, he didn't call for any killing, and they've gone out and killed all on their own. You would think, oh, a prophet, like Buddha, Jesus, right? He's going to reprimand them. No. Just the opposite. Muhammad said they had done well. And he came up with an instant justification for to, to prove that what his guys had done, what his followers had done, was the right thing to do. It turns out that all of the people that had been killed were non-believers. So, killing non-believers was a good thing to do, according to Muhammad. And then later on, uh, Muhammad, as I said, would go on to lead 65 military campaigns, or command 65 military campaigns, and personally lead his men out into the field and kill Um, Muhammad had a problem. Um, he was, he had put his men uh, in front of a, a mountain, which sounds like good positioning, good military positioning. The difficulty was that the mountain had, was a double humped mountain, and there was a pass. And that meant that uh, the enemy could have come down on Muhammad from the rear. But Muhammad was no dummy when it came to military matters, so he took 50 archers, and he positioned them in the pass. Um, within a short amount of time of the battle's beginning, looked like the enemy turned tail and fled. So Muhammad's troops, his ground troops, immediately began scooping up the loot. Now, dividing up the loot is so important in Islam that it's an entire chapter of the Quran, chapter 8, all about how to divvy up the loot and the women, because if you're really in luck, you not only get the goods of the enemy, you get their women. But in this case, there were only goods. Well, the archers back in the past seeing that the infantry was down there scooping up, stripping the clothes off of the bodies and taking all the weapons, knew that if it didn't get down into the 
battlefield quickly, it was going to lose out on its chance to get any of the loot. So the 50 archers abandoned their position in the pass and came running down to the battlefield to get their share of the booty. The uh, enemy uh, were no dummies either. They doubled around uh, the mountain, and they came down on Muhammad from the rear. Um, and Muhammad's men fled the battlefield. He was left on the battlefield with, uh, depending on the account, with a, between only one and six bodyguards. It was just him. I mean, there was, he was actually charged by a lancer who was intent on doing away with him, and Muhammad picked up a lance and speared the other guy in the neck. And though the wound took weeks to kill the person that Muhammad had speared, um, he died. So Muhammad was furious. He was furious that his troops had left him on the battlefield. And he had to come up with a solution to this problem. How would he keep troops in the future from ever abandoning the battlefield again? And he came up with the following. Um, if you die, and uh, first of all, life is an SAT test. Um, and how you be behave in this life determines whether you go, will go to heaven or hell. Um, if you do everything exactly the way Muhammad tells you to, you will go, in all probability, to heaven. But if you stay on the battlefield killing the enemy until the enemy finally kills you, if you die in the process of killing unbelievers, Here's where Muhammad added a magic touch that had never occurred to the Christians. The Christian heaven is the most boring place in the world. You get up every day, put on your robes, get your harp, and go sit at the feet of God and sing his praises. That gets stale after a while. Muhammad knew that. So Muhammad put the 72 virgins that you've heard about, he put right. sex in paradise. That's when he, and that was one of the greatest innovations in the history of heavens. Um, so the general idea, and this applies today, why do we have situations like the Berlin truck uh, murders, the, the Paris massacres, uh, the San Bernardino killings, um, the Ohio State attacker, in which, or the Istanbul nightclub attacker? In most of these cases, the attackers willingly go to their death. The 9-11 attackers, the World Trade Center bombers. Why? Why are they so willingly and joyfully going to their death? Uh, because of that express ticket to paradise, because of that express ticket to 72 virgins, because of that express ticket to a sexualized... Wow. We covered a lot of territory. We have a couple minutes left. Uh, Howard, that's amazing stuff. <laughs> well, like the, listen to a couple of these quotes, um, and, and they'll make, begin to make sense to you. At the beginning of this half hour, they wouldn't have made sense. You know that um, Theo Van Gogh made a film that Muslims didn't like, and so Theo, Theo Van Gogh, the great-grandson of uh, Vincent Van Gogh's brother, was most... The killer of Theo Van Gogh was accurate in that statement. And another statement, the ecstasy, this one talks about the ecstasy of self-sacrifice and the pleasure of jihad, the ecstasy of killing people.
but that's something that fascinates me as well. We're going to get back. We're going to end the show here. I want you to think like me. I just want you to think. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.